Hello, and thanks for joining us for this talk tonight titled Critical Theory and the Gospel. My name is Carl Santos. I'm the senior pastor here at Redeemer Bible Church in Niagara Falls, and we have three basic goals for today. What we're going to do is we're going to ask, what is critical theory? Then, what is critical race theory? And finally, how Christians should respond to it. So, if those are the goals, it's important to also note what are not the goals of tonight. So, there's a few of those things. Um, One of them is, we are not here to deny the issues that gave rise to critical theory, which is namely oppression. There certainly is racism. There certainly is oppression. There certainly is injustice that is happening in Canada and around the world. And when you refute a theory, sometimes you can get a little so carried, you get so carried away in wanting to refute the theory that you actually go too far sometimes and refute the things that gave rise to the theory. And we're not here to do that because there are real issues. And I believe that critical theory actually was birthed with good intentions, as many things were. Um, so I, we're not here to deny that there are needs for change and for justice to be restored and in some cases created. So that's not what we're here to do. Uh, we're here to, to make sure that we acknowledge all that. But we're also here to make sure that I don't want me, I want to make sure people don't leave this call or this, this talk thinking that they're going to be experts because none of us are experts in this. In fact, I'm actually uh, encouraged by even critical theorists are constantly considering their perspectives and their views. Now, they may not change things as much as I'd like, but many are coming out and saying, hey, we didn't anticipate some of the things that are going on in other countries and, and even in the United States where critical theory was kind of birthed. Um, so, well, not birthed, but at least has seen rise with critical race theory. Um, so I'm encouraged by some people saying, hey, we're trying to learn what it means in this different climate. And I think we have to realize none of us will be experts by the end of this, this talk. Also, this is not an opportunity for Christians to grow more negative. Oftentimes, Christians can become very negative in refuting things that they feel threatened by, which is unfortunately human nature. And this is not an attempt to give you um, reason to become more negative or to get more angry. Um, And it's certainly not an opportunity to get arguments and ideas that you can use to refute other people and to win arguments. That's not what this is about either. And it's also not a time for boasting. Anytime we assess something, we're not here trying to say we're the greatest thing since sliced bread. That's not the case. Tonight, we are simply trying to understand what is critical theory and critical race theory and how do we respond to it. And so we want to make sure as well that people, um, many people have been caught off guard by these ideas. I remember there's a pastor in Brooklyn who was feeling quite attacked because when the stuff blew up in the United States last year with the George Floyd uh, murder and death, um, there was a lot of people crying out and pastors and Christians crying out for justice. There needs to be better uh, justice and systems to protect minorities and 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 uh, certain groups in the United States. But the moment they started saying that, they realized some people started saying, well, you're a critical race theorist. And they were caught off guard and said, well, we've never even heard of that word. <laughs> so people... We need to be calm as we, we, we consider this. And we have to realize that um, we are Christians and we're supposed to handle this in a certain way. And here at Redeemer specifically, we want to be a church that engages the culture deeply, meaningfully, and with humility and grace. We don't want to be a church that is known for what we disagree with, for what we aren't for. Instead, we are going to be a church that is known for promoting Christ and all that the gospel can, in, contains 
We will proclaim Christ through evangelism, but we'll also try to model Christ through good works in our community. That doesn't make us critical race theorists. It makes us Christians. And as a result, uh, this talk is meant to help us figure out how do we do this better? How do we engage with a, a, a theory that we have lots of issues with? And we want to refute those issues, but we also want to make sure that we um, are not engaging the, these arguments the way the world engages them, with anger and with labeling and with uh, frustration, right? So that's what we're going to do. So let's start this talk by looking at what is critical theory. So we have to start with critical theory because critical race theory comes from it. So critical theory, it kind of begins, I think, and I, I mean, we have to be quick because this is a short talk, but it begins with the fall and the, and the disillusionment that many scholars and people had with Marxism. So already by the late 1920s and 30, early 30s, it became clear that Marxism had failed. And by that, I'm sure there may be some Marxists listening who disagree with me. But Marxism um, had some very specific ideas about the world. See, Karl Marx was a 19th century German philosopher who had the idea, and, and quite ingenious in some ways too, that all of human history, every human issue, comes from broken relationships um, in regards to economics. So he broke up the world into two groups. He said you are either an owner or you're a worker. You're either what he would call the bourgeoisie, the ones who own the means of production, the mills, the factories, and all, and so on. Or you're one of the, the, the peons who support and grease the cogs of the, the, the economy. So you're either or. And that was what he called those the proletariat. And remember, he's writing at a time when the Industrial Revolution is really taking root and uh, in Manchester, specifically in England, he had seen the great disparity between the poor and the rich. And he theorized that this gap between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, or the rich and the poor, was so wide, and it was getting wider every year. And he theorized that it would eventually grow so wide, and he called that gap between the rich and the poor the cleavage. And he said that cleavage would eventually grow so wide that what would happen is the, the have-nots, the workers, would get so upset that they would just revolt. And eventually they would revolt and they would dis defeat the, the, worker, the owners of the means of production and they would take them for themselves and then institute this utopian idea of a communism, right? Of, of a place where, um, a world where everything was commonly owned, where there would be no more owners versus workers and so on. Now, that took took root in a lot of organizations, a lot of places, a lot of countries. But by the 30s, it became clear that he had missed the mark a little. His theory hadn't anticipated a number of things. And the, the two that stand out to me anyway is the first one is he didn't anticipate the rise of a middle class. You see, he didn't see that in between the rich and the poor, capitalism would produce this vast majority of the, of the population that would become content like probably most of us listening here and, and, in, and on the call, um, he didn't anticipate that mo most people out of capitalism would be like we are, rich enough to live and have good, meaningful lives, but not so rich that they were, uh, you know, filthy rich, but also not so poor that they would be destitute. He didn't foresee capitalism pr producing a contented working class. 
And so that kind of threw a wrench into things. But he also didn't anticipate uh, fascism. He didn't see Mussolini and Hitler and various right-wing authoritarian governments that then used the state to take control of the means of production of, of the economy, as Hitler did and Mussolini did, and so on. So lots of things he didn't see. And as a result, what happens is theorists and scholars start thinking, okay, if, if the whole world isn't a dis disaster because of economic relationships, then why is it that we still have this, we still have all this, um, uh, this oppression? We still have rich and poor. We still have people being taken advantage of. So if the answer isn't Marxism, that the root of all of our problems is race, or sorry, um, economic relationships, then what is the problem? And the answer started to percolate with a group of guys um, in Frankfurt, in Germany, and they became known as the Frankfurt School. And there were, there were guys like Max Horkheimer, Walter Benjamin, Herbert Marcuse, Eric Fromm, and Theodore Adorno. And specifically Horkheimer um, was more, uh, probably the more vocal, of the, maybe the more well-known of the group. And they decided that, uh, that the issues in the world still existed. There were still problems. But the issues weren't so much economic, but that they were cultural. So they shift the idea of saying, hey, the world is still a mess and there's still people oppressing other people. But they're not only doing it through the economy. They're doing it through race, through gender, through sexual identity and things like that. All the cultural issues, these are them, are, are, are what the problem is in the world. Um, so, for instance, they would say, well, one of the issues is men dominating women or blacks being dominated by whites or so on and so forth. And they saw the issues as being cultural. And this is why sometimes you hear critical theory uh, referred to as uh, cultural Marxism, because they are taking the same idea that Marx had that's saying that relationships are the problem. But instead of saying it's economic like Marx did, they are saying it's cultural issues that are separating us and causing all the problems in the world. Now, with that, here's what Horkheimer says. Horkheimer says critical theory is basically this. It is the act of looking at the world with the ultimate goal to liberate human beings from the circumstances that enslave them. So, with that said, here's what it means. Critical theory is this way of looking at the world that aims to act as a liberating influence in the world, and it wants to identify, expose, and replace all structures and ideas that create, perpetuate, and sustain oppression. Okay, I'll say that again. Cultural uh, Critical theory aims to act as a liberating influence in the world, identifying, exposing, and replacing all structures and ideas that create, perpetuate, and sustain oppression. Excuse me. Now, from here, with that perspective, we have to accept as Christians, and even those of us who are more prone to being critical, no pun intended, of critical theory, have to at least accept that this is not a bad thing in and of itself. To look at the world in such a way as to look for oppression, to see where are people being oppressed, to try to understand who is doing the oppressing, to find out excuse me, how they are doing the oppressing, and then how to fix it. Now, these are good things. These are good intentions. So at the moment, I don't think as Christians we should have an issue with this idea. I mean, at least that, that general perspective. I do have issues by saying that um, everything is cultural. Uh, the, the cultural or economic issues are our biggest problems, and we're going to get to why I think that shortly. So because critical theory 
aims to end all oppression of every type in the world. As a result, what happens is you find that critical theory, theory is basically like an umbrella. And under it, there's various different theories that get proposed. One that is like, well, not like, it is queer theory that seeks to look at the world through the question of sexual identity and try to figure out why, where the oppression is, how to fix it, and so on. Then you have another branch that is feminism that seeks to look at gender issues. And then you've got, of course, and, and there's others, but then there's critical race theory, which is the is critical theory when it turns its focus to look through the lens of race. How are they, how is there racial oppression? Who is doing the oppressing? How are they doing it? And how do we eliminate it? So that's where you get critical race theory coming out from this idea of critical theory. And critical theory would say that the way the dominant powers control or oppress the ones under them are often by the use, not often, entirely almost, by the, by the use of something that they call hegemonic power. Now, I'm going to use bigger words every once in a while because I want you to be familiar with them when they pop up in newspapers or conversations. Hegemonic power is this, is the ability to dominate groups and impose values or norms and expectations on society and thereby regulate some uh, to, to subordinate positions. So let me explain what hegemonic power looks like in very practical terms as you'd see it in the world. So the argument would go something like this. If there is a, a, a ruling class, a ruling group, in this case, let's use race. Let's use the classic racial idea that in America, for instance, that the white uh, people have power. The argument would go something like this. They would do this. They begin in schools. And they shift and they mold curriculums in schools to teach the norms of the white classes to suggest, even if it's subtly, um, a certain way of thinking and looking at the world that supports keeping the white people in power. And then they create banks and businesses and economic policies that they implement to maintain the status quo. So, for instance, they may make it harder for a black person or a person of color or a minority or somebody of a particular religion um, to get a bank loan. Or they may make it more difficult for them to get into universities. And as a result, what they're doing is they're using the power of the economy and education to now um, sustain and perpetuate their position of power and if all that fails and the and the oppressed groups get angry and start to cause trouble well don't worry the oppressors have the police force and the army which enforce the norms to suppress attempts to change them and so that's how hegemonic power works and critical theory says all oppressive groups do that in some way and Again, we can refute parts of that. However, Christians should be careful because I think we recognize that as a church, we have talked about hegemonic powers since the beginning of Christianity. Certainly, we realize um, how hegemonic power works. We have seen how the government and the media can perpetuate secularism, naturalism, relativism, materialism, all that make it more difficult for the gospel to flourish. We've seen how the media and advertising uh, promotes false standards of beauty and sexuality. And that makes it harder for us. So the church realizes that there are hegemonic powers, that schools, businesses, media, all of it can be geared to make it more difficult for the church. So we can't deny that hegemonic power is real and that it can be used for various means by groups who control them. 
So again here, although we can disagree with parts of what critical theory is saying, there are elements of truth there. And I think as if we're going to be honest as we engage with critical theory, we have to realize that. That it is not, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, as it were. So if that's what critical, critical theory is, then what is critical race theory? Well, this is, as I said, what happens when critical theory turns its attention to what we, to, um, to look through the lens of race. Now, when critical theorists or critical race theorists talk about the world, they say, okay, the world is broken into two groups. You are born into one of these two groups. This is what critical theory says, right? Critical theory says you're born as, like it or not, you are born as either an oppressor or an oppressed. That's it. Everybody is categorized and lumped. And when critical race theory picks it up, it says, yes, you are born into one of two groups. You are either white or everyone else. Now, remember, critical race theory took hold specifically in the United States. And as it has now seeped its way and found its way into Canada, we can't um, use it entirely the way it is. People, the way people are using critical race theory is you can't refer to the same issues because we don't have the same cultural and historic and racial tensions and issues that America has. Um, and yet we still have seen or seeing it here popping up in our schools and our workplaces and our media. And it says you're born as you're either white or you're everything else. Simple. And I want to again caution here and remember that the originators of this claim of critical race theory are, in their, to their credit, trying to understand what does critical race theory look like outside of the United States. Because the original creation was for the American context. And now, as it finds its way into other countries, it is being adapted and they're trying to figure things out um, to their credit. But I still think there's plenty of issues here. So to understand what critical race theory is specifically, I'm going to look at a few terms or a few ideas that they promote. And I'll try to be as fair as I can here. And I'll also try to address why I think scripture has some issues with some of these. The first premise of critical race theory, and this is in no particular order, is one, A, a would be this. Racism is normative, meaning race, racism is everywhere. The question, question isn't, did race play a part in an issue? in an arrest, in any sort of issue that happens in Canada. But where was it? It's not a matter of did it happen, it's where was it? How did it show itself? And kind of the, one of the founders of this critical race theory, uh, Richard Delgado and his wife, Jean uh, Stefanchich, um, wrote this book on the introduction to uh, critical race theory. And here's what they say. Racism is the usual way society does business the common everyday experience of most people of color in this United States country. So again, to them, uh, critical, critical race theorists will say racism is ubiquitous. It is everywhere. And it'll try to then see everything through the lens of race. And this is why you're beginning to see, for instance, people defacing um, statues of, people, of, our, of the fathers of Canadian Confederation, like John A. Macdonald or so on and wanting to change names of places because they represent uh, men or women who are not the most upright. And the reason is this, they want to look at history and assess all of history through the lens of race. So confederation is now made to be a racial issue when perhaps, to be fair, it wasn't a racial issue entirely. Not to suggest that there wasn't issues of race and, and certainly the way Canadians and Europeans took advantage of the indigenous people and, and marginalized them and so on. That's no way defending that. But the problem is that critical race theory, if we're not careful, 
will redefine history through and exclusively through the lens of race. So Confederation now is um, above all about uh, not founded uh, based on con- on compromise and discussion and diplomacy and so on. Instead, no, this country was founded on racism, founded on privilege of Europeans over the indigenous people, and that isn't really fair. It's right that we and we we make note of it surely, and that we talk about it and we try to assess the issues that we now inherit from that. But to say that it's all that is problematic and simply untrue. But that's where critical race theory can go if it is allowed to go to its logical ends, which we are seeing in many cases. Now, we hear that this very popular term, white privilege, as well, uh, quite often. Now, white privilege, here's what it refers to. White privilege refers to the structural injustices affixed to white-skinned people. So white people possess, by virtue of their skin color, social and material advantages. So the idea, and and there are some partial truths to this, okay? We want to, again, be very fair. We have to realize that white people in Canada are more likely or less likely to be aborted as children, more likely to be born to homes that aren't in poverty. They're more likely to have two parents. They're more likely to live in better neighborhoods. They're more likely to be hired. They're more likely to make people feel more comfortable when they walk by them in the street they're actually more likely to be treated fairly, they, at least the, the feeling they get, when they encounter police on the road. These are all facts and stats of surveys. And we can't deny that we now benefit, to an extent anyway, from a history that has preferred a certain people over other people. Okay, We can't deny certain aspects of that. What we can deny, however, is, well, a lot of things that we can deny about this. So white privilege, as much as we can say there may be some benefits because of the way thing, the, the deck was stacked historically, we can't go and accept everything that it suggests nor everything that critical race theory suggests for a number of reasons. Here's one of them. And let me say one more thing we agree on, though. Critical race theory and Christians can agree on this. Racism is a construct and not rooted in human nature or biology. Okay, critical race theorists would say racism is something we've learned. It's not something that we have to be. Um, there's no truth in racism that one race is superior to the other, biologically, physiologically, morally, etc. And that is something Christianity agrees with entirely. So we can agree there. But here's some problems that I personally have, and you can disagree with me. This is again my opinion here of my view of, of what's going on. First. If we're not careful, critical race theory says that I am guilty simply by being born into a system. So simply by being born white, I am guilty. That the baby of a rich white couple is guilty simply by being born. And now this is not new. Malcolm X had said this in the 60s. This is not a brand new idea by any stretch that that a child is complicit in slavery. Now, I find that highly problematic for a number of reasons, but the first one is biblical. The Bible says very clearly that my guilt is governed by my moral agency, that there is a connection between my own action and my own guilt and innocence. It is not based on the actions of another. So, um, when we, for instance, when, uh, when, even when the Bible in Exodus 20 speaks about how the consequences 
of this of sin will be will be brought of the, the sorry excuse me the consequences of the sins of the fathers will be brought to bear onto the children this is not suggesting that we are guilty of our parents sin what it's saying is i may suffer the consequences of my parents sin which is true in fact you and i have inherited a racial mess and the residential school mess and so many things but we're not guilty of them we are not complicit in something we haven't participated in but what we are responsible for is the fact that we have inherited these problems and now we have to figure out how do we move forward and remedy them that is a christian perspective there entirely um, and look at places like Ezekiel 18, 20 as well that says the soul who, sh- who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father for the iniquity of the son. And there's been instances where we've seen pastors, uh, I think mostly in America, literally repenting that they were, that they were white. And that is completely wrong, completely unbiblical. We are not to repent for something we had no control over. That is, that is unheard of. It's ridiculous, to be honest. Um, so my concern is that critical race theory in suggesting that people are guilty simply by being born is actually creating the same problem and perpetuating the same problem it's trying to undo. The, the, the wicked racism of our ancestors that said black people, indigenous people, and so on are, are guilty because of their skin color is exactly what we are seeing at the worst parts of critical race theory that says that we are guilty because of our race. So I find it difficult to support any idea that says that a concept, you know, that, that, that is using a concept of guilt to leverage power. So we can't agree with that as Christians. We just can't. And we saw the effects of how critical race theory has already taken hold in, um, in, in the United States and, is, and up here as well, in the George Floyd tragedy. Now, George Floyd was killed and this, his, his murderer, his killer, has been punished and so on. So I'm not here to deny that that was a terrible, terrible thing. What I am here to question is, why is it that immediately when, when this happened, um, the question immediately went to a question of race. It, was, it had to have been a racial issue. You know, when a white man kills a black man, it must be a race issue. And it may very well have been, okay? I'm not suggesting it isn't. What I'm saying is it's interesting that the narrative immediately from the media was it's race. It went there right away. And the fact that it went there right away is an indication of how deeply this idea has already taken hold. Let me move on. The second point I want to talk about about critical race theory is this idea of convergence theory. In In a nutshell, it says... That racism can only be positively addressed when the interest of the oppressor and the oppressed converge. Okay, So the idea is that I, as a white person, will only ever positively affect racism and try to change it or help somebody of a different color if their interest converges with mine. That's a problematic issue, but let's go back to, to Delgado again, this, this, one of the founders of, of the theory. And here's what he says. Racism advances the interests of both white elites materially and working class whites physically. Large segments of society have little incentive to eradicate it. And here's what he means. He says, you know, if you're white, you either benefit materially from racism, meaning you're exploiting people. So for instance, on a very extreme example, the owners of the 
Professional Golf Association, only uh, promoted Tiger Woods because he was black and he was because he was a great golfer and he could make the money. It wasn't because he, it wasn't um, specifically for Tiger Woods that they promoted him. It was because their interests converged. This is convergence theory. The interest to make money by the white owners of the PGA um, converged with the interests of Tiger Woods being a really great golfer. And because they converged, Woods was promoted. And that's the only way things will ever be positively impacted, they say. That is problematic, highly problematic. But let's move a couple more examples. So for instance, when Justin Trudeau just appointed Mary Simon, a famous, not famous, but um, a very well-respected, and by all accounts, from my understanding anyway, a great um, promoter of Inuit rights, um, when he makes her the governor general, the critical race theorists would, and I think they have a point here, would say it's purely political. Trudeau, the white man, has interests that ben and he benefits by promoting an indigenous woman to this role. It makes him look better. He gets votes. It's a hot topic in the in the government, and in the pol in politics and in the media. So it makes him look good. So the only reason Mary Simon is promoted is because her interests and his converge. And we can agree it was probably a political move, surely. Um, but there's issues here. It says that as a white person, if a white boss promotes a colored employee, then her main motive is just personal gain. And if we follow this to its, to its logical conclusion, we have a big problem again. Because what it's saying is white people are incapable and undesiring to address racism because of their skin color. The only way for it to ever get better is only because if, if white people's selfishness is also benefiting. That's a problem because that means we're now condemning people based again entirely on their skin color and heritage. So we have to deal with that, so that we can't allow that idea to take hold. So it's just not always true, even if it is sometimes true. Third thing I would point out is what Vody Basham calls ethnic Gnosticism. Now, Gnostics were these ancient Greeks who believed that certain types of knowledge were only accessible by special people. So um, this idea is also called standpoint theory, if you're a Marxist uh, scholar. And the idea is that knowledge is conditioned and determined by social location. So let me give you an example. In critical race theory, the idea is that the oppressed groups, black people, minorities of any type, they see the world and they see truth clearer and better because they have experienced oppression. And the only way to see the world clearly is actually to be part of this group of people who has been oppressed. White eyes are always clouded by privilege, they would say. And the only way to know the issue then for a white person is to be quiet and let people who have been oppressed speak. Okay? It says that members of oppressed groups have special access to the truth because of their lived experience of, of oppression. Um... And with this idea, it's very flawed. And one of the issues I have with it, a big one, is, is that it suggests that any, any, any input that I as a white person, for instance, would want to have into the question of racism I, is invalid because I can't possibly know how to fix it because I'm not, I'm not an, I haven't been oppressed. So every time I open my mouth, they would say, to try to fix it, I'm really, even if I don't know it, trying to just support my position and keep the black person or the minority down. This is very problematic because what it ends up doing is silencing dialogue. It says that, hey, 
Be quiet and listen to the story of the oppressed person, because they know better than you. Now, surely, the perspective of the oppressed is vital and important and should never be silenced. But it's quite ridiculous to assume that that's the only perspective that is valid. Surely, scholars have much to say about oppression and how to fix it, because they have spent their lives studying it. Surely certain workers who have spent their lives working in urban ministry, regardless of color and race and and gender and every other thing, have legitimate grounds to speak into issues of race. From a scriptural perspective, I would say this, there is only one final arbiter of truth, and that is the Bible, that is scripture. It is not any human. It doesn't matter about their experience. Human experience is not the gatekeeper of truth. It's not. Scripture is regardless of demographics, and plenty of scriptures tell us that. Psalm 119, 130, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, 1 Corinthians 2, 12 to 14, Hebrews 8, 10 to 12. I will also say this, pastors and Christians are called to speak on all matters. So pastors are called to speak on all matters, though to do it prayerfully and carefully reflecting on the issues, but looking at the world through a biblical lens. And we're called to speak on those things as pastors. But the priesthood of believers And the Spirit, um, the presence of the Spirit in us as Christians enlightens us. And it trumps ethnic Gnosticism. That the Spirit allows us to be and makes us able to be, wanting to be, and able of actually producing change in all areas of oppression, regardless of whether or not we've experienced it or not. And yet, remember, we have to be careful. I want to reject this idea of Gnosticism without rejecting the truth that the people who have suffered have a voice. They have a say. We have to listen to understand better. But we don't have to listen to get all truth. That's, that is erroneous, I would think. And the last part of critical race theory we'll talk about quickly is that critical race theory is a worldview. Now, some people would disagree with me, but what are, is a worldview? Well, a worldview is a, it posits a meta-narrative, a story that explains everything, right? That's what a, a worldview is. It's the way of looking at the world that gives you an answer for the deepest questions of life. So the answer of basic questions like, who am I? Why am I here? What is our biggest problem? What is the solution? What story am I a part of? And if you were to hold these two up, Side by side, you'd see that critical race theory and Christianity have different answers to these questions. And as a result, Christians need to ultimately reject critical race theory as a worldview, even though we should be accepting some of the facets that we've talked about so far. For instance, with the question, who am I? Critical race theory says, well, you're either oppressed or oppressor. Simple. Your identity is determined by social markers. The Bible says, no, I'm either a son or a slave. There's a vertical understanding, not a horizontal one. My identity is determined not by social markers, but my my relationship with God. I'm either in Christ or outside of Christ. The next question would be, well, why am I here? Well, critical race theory says that you're here to uncover and eradicate oppression and slavery and liberate the slave. Christianity would say, no, no, you are here first and foremost to know God and glorify him and to help others to do the same. Now, wrapped into that is the need to be aware of social justice, to be involved in making and restoring this, making the world better, restoring God's original intent to the world. But make no mistake, we are not here primarily as social justice people. We are here primarily to know God and glorify him and help others do the same. 
What is our biggest problem? Well, critical race theory would say our biggest problem as humanity is oppression and exploitation. Christianity says, no, our biggest problem is sin and rebellion versus God. The answer to what is the solution to all this? Well, critical race theory says the answer is to overthrow the oppressor and all his tools of oppression. Christianity says, no, the gospel is the solution. That repentance to and submitting to all that God's uh, that God has commanded and allowing him to scrutinize us and to be our God, that is the solution. The gospel, repentance and faith in Christ, that is the solution. Um, and then, of course, what is the story I'm a part of? What's a grand story? Well, Critical Race Series says you're born into this story of oppression that's on its way leading to liberation. Christianity says... No, the story starts with creation, it goes to the fall, then to redemption and restoration. So when you look at, the, when you hold these two side by side, you begin to realize that they are not the same. And you can't accept one without rejecting the other, at least as, as a whole. But that doesn't mean you reject every part of it, again, as we keep saying. So if that's what critical race theory is in a nutshell and critical theory, well, how do we respond to it? Let me be brief as we close. First, humility. I think we must as a church respond using the basic rules of dialogue. First and foremost, we have to avoid using labels and name calling and attacking. You know, if we're going to, to poke apart a theory, we have to make sure we attack the, the ideas and not the people. That we attack explicit statements, not generalizations that we think we heard from media. We have to ask a lot of questions one of the key things in dialogue that as Christians that we can bring to the table is to say, interesting, tell me more about this. How do you think this? What do you think about that? And start asking questions. And to do all of this in truth and in love, full of grace. Remember, our job is not to dominate or to silence anything or anyone, but to persuade and to love. So in this increasingly tribalized and fractured world, we as a church are, known, are, are to be known as gracious people. You have to remember that. So humility is the first thing. The second is um, to see the church as a local, as a witness to unity. In a world saturated with evil and divided by enmity, critical theory is very attractive because it promises justice. However, the church should be demonstrating the justice that critical race theory is seeking. It wants racial reconciliation and harmony. Well, the church can model that. Christ broke down the dividing wall in himself to make the two one. And so it's possible. So if we can begin to show fellowship across cultural lines, we then begin to undermine the claims of critical theory as an only path to flourishing. See, critical theory says this is the only way to be flourished, to flourish is to have the oppressor overthrown. The church then comes, and if it can do its job properly, as the Bible indicates, then we become a bulwark against this and we say no it's not the only way and not only is it not the only way but it then gives us credibility to charge critical theorists as failing to deliver on their promises because critical theory ultimately cannot deliver what it's promising which is unity it can't because all it seems to do at its worst is replace one oppressor for another so we need as a local church demonstrate this and talk about these topics which is why we're doing this at redeemer Third, I would say this, we have to affirm what the Bible says about race, race and justice. We have to spend more time talking about the biblical idea of, of justice and race than we do engaging with the cultural idea. Now, we have to do both to an extent, to be sure. But you must spend and I must spend more time in the Bible than we do in the culture. 
We can't follow red herrings that will ask us to define terms and to answer questions that are unbiblical questions to begin with. We need to continually point to what the Bible says about reconciliation and race and justice. And to do that means we as Christians must be much better at actually reading our Bibles and studying them carefully. So let's affirm what the Bible says about race first and foremost. That must be our our platform, as it were. Second last thing I would say is this. We have to approach things with maturity and integrity. Stop taking everything personally. Don't dial up the intensity on these dialogues beyond where they belong. Remember, you're a sinner and not an expert. Um, You have to understand the terms and the source material. So I've got a a reading list I have sent out and shared with the the church that um, we can put out on social media or something that is not just Christian books on on critical theory, but but really good secular books. Sometimes the books written by critical theorists where we will disagree with much of what they say, but it's important that we approach this with integrity and actually read what they say rather than assuming we know what they say, which... I'm sorry, most Christians do and most people do. Most of us are looking for Twitter to give us our answers and uh, Fox News and so on rather than doing the hard work of learning ourselves. Okay, So I encourage us to do that. We have to be bold but not be rude or dismissive. We have to be mature in these dialogues. Compassion and courage can coexist. Wisdom with words and seeking to persuade and win a soul is what we should be doing, not wishing to crush people. We have to also confess that there is a com- this is a complex issue. We can't use oversimplistic language and say things like, well, there's no racism in the church or um, residential schools, schools weren't bad. The media is making them bad. Stop talking like that. That is not true. And the vast generalization can do nothing to make your cause more secure or to pacify the person you're talking and dialoguing with. It's just going to make people angry. Generalizations are not helpful. Let's ex- let's expe- accept and, and and talk about the idea that these are very complex issues, and they're going to have a complex answer, just the way it's going to be. Um, and after all, isn't it possible that minorities have it much harder than we think? Some of us. Isn't it possible that our history is more checkered than we think, even though there is still much in it to be thankful for? Well, I think there is. And lastly, let me say this: engage with local officials. We can't forget as Christians uh, that we don't accept the way the world works. See, the world is working in such a way as to just get angry and throw things onto social media. Let us be a people that are good citizens. Let us, if we have questions and concerns about what we're hearing being taught in schools or on the media, take it to our officials. Let's use the system. Let's dialogue wisely. Let's not be um, cultural terrorists is what I'd call them. You know, people who shoot from the outside. Let us get involved. Let us have dialogue. Let's engage with local officials. So that is a quick, very quick introduction to critical theory and critical race theory. I hope this has been somewhat helpful for you. Obviously, I I can't say everything in 40 minutes. Obviously, there's lots of loose ends and there's lots of things I could have filled the gaps with. But this is a start of a dialogue. It's not meant to be the end of one. So thanks for listening. If you have any questions, please direct them to Redeemer Church. You know how to reach us on social media and the such. We want to make sure this remains a dialogue that we're having uh, in the church as we look to bring God's gospel to bear in our country and in our world. So thanks so much for joining us and have a great day.